This is the holy, perfect, trustworthy, and true word of God, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. This is a wonderful book, especially if you're suffering. If you're suffering for your Christian faith, suffering for righteousness, being persecuted by friends or by your work or whatever, this is the book you want to turn to. Peter's letter here in 1 Peter is a call to live a holy life in times of trouble, in difficult situations that we are to live holy and to also understand that suffering could actually be a gift from God in doing that. So as Christians, as believers in the world, our response to this pressure, to suffering, discrimination, maybe being ridiculed, the path to holiness involves acceptance of pain. Without pain, there's no holiness. And an awareness that this suffering is actually a gift from God. You don't want to push that away. You don't want to avoid that. You want to receive that. The whole theme in 1 Peter is suffering for doing good. Peter mentions the word suffer or suffering or that like 19 times. In this first letter, 19 times he mentions the word suffer or suffering. Now, we don't know what type of suffering these believers were enduring. Peter doesn't say anything about physical sufferings, although they might have been suffering physical beatings and actually martyred for their faith. 
the sufferings that he seems to be talking about is more of like the verbal abuse and discrimination. You're living in this world, but you're not of the world. You're kind of weird. You're kind of different. So therefore, you're being insulted. As we're going to see a little bit later in First Peter chapter 4, that these people malign you. They insult you. They were scattered. They were scattered strangers, and they were going through suffering and persecution. Some of them were suffering because they lived godly lives and was doing what was actually good and right in the eyes of the Lord, and yet they were suffering for that. Others were suffering reproach for the name of Christ and being made fun of by unsaved people. And Peter wrote this letter to encourage them And in spite of all of this persecution, you are to be good witnesses to those who are are persecuting you. And therefore, glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said in Luke 6, verses 22 and 23, Blessed are you when people hate you. (laughs) What? What? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So on the account of Jesus, we're suffering insults and ridicule. Blessed are you. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Beginning in verse 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, you've been appointed, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself who judges justly. So Christ is our example that when we're being ridiculed and persecuted and suffering these types of things, we are to look to Christ who has already gone through that. And he is our example that when this was happening to him, he did not insult back. He did not return back, but he fully trusted all of this into a faithful God's hand. So if you're suffering today for your faith, you want to go to 1 Peter. It's a wonderful book. Peter's theme here is to choose suffering over sin. Choose suffering over unrighteousness. I would rather suffer for my faith than to not suffer for my faith and choose to do the easy thing, which is sin, which is what they were being persecuted by their friends to sin. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while... Doing good. So as we are suffering for our faith, we are to entrust entrust that suffering to a faithful creator and continue to do good. Their suffering, their persecution doesn't uh, get us off the narrow road and get on the path of the broad road where we we start sinning like they do so we can just avoid suffering. That's not the goal. And this is what Peter here is trying to tell us. You are going to suffer for being godly in a perverse, ungodly world. You're going to suffer. But in spite of that, we need to trust that God knows well what's going on, and he's allowed this, and it's for his glory, and we can trust him that he will see us through this all the way to eternal glory. Should suffering be a surprise for Christians? Absolutely not, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No way around it. 
If you are going to live godly in a world that is not godly, you are going to suffer persecution. This should not be a surprise to us. That's why Peter says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, don't, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange things were happening to you. You should expect this. This should be the norm. Suffering is normal in the world for Christians. It happened to them, and we have to expect it's going to happen to us. There's going to be no difference. Peter says that they were exiled, meaning that they were strangers. They were foreigners. They didn't belong. Because Christians are strangers in the world, they are they are considered to be strange in the eyes of the world. Did you get that? Because Christians are strangers in the world, then they are to be considered to be strange in the eyes of the world. You're strange. You're weird. You're not normal. Praise God. Leap for joy. You know, as Christians, church, we were never created to fit in, right? We weren't created to blend in. We were created to be separated. We were born again to be separated from it. Although we do live in this world, we're not to be a part of the world. We're not, to, we're not supposed to fix, you know, to blend in. There, there should be a difference. People should be able to tell you're different. You're strange. If they don't see that, then you're probably living worldly. And if you're living worldly, then no problem. There'll be no suffering. But that's not why we've been called, church. We have been called to suffer for being holy, not worldly. We're not to be conformed to the world, as Paul tells us in Romans 12. To all its carnal affections, but with our whole being, body, soul, and spirit, we are to live for only one thing, and that is for the glory of God. That's the only thing. And by God's grace, you will live a life that is pleasing to God. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation and a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a chosen people, church. You're a royal priesthood, a people for his own possessions, not so that you can live how you want, but that you can exemplify his glory in your life. Verse 10, once you were not a people. Do you remember those days? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And because of that, beloved, Peter says, I urge you as sojourners, as foreigners, as being exiled, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from it, which wage war against your soul. So since you're a chosen generation, you're a, pe a peculiar people, a, 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 a possession of God's who's called you out of darkness and into his light, you are his. And because of that, I want you to abstain from your fleshly desires. You've been called for holiness, not worldliness. This is Peter's goal. So in chapter 1, as Ryan read, this is actually not going to be our text. It's kind of a little induction here. Peter says this beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What's that living hope? Verse 21 actually says that it's actually God himself. We've been, we've been called, we've been caused to be born again by God to a living hope, to God himself. Be hopeful in your persecution. Be hopeful in your suffering. Be hopeful in your goal of living holy. God's with you. So he says, being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So because of this wonderful, wonderful act of mercy that God has shown you, if you have been born again, you have eternal life. You're no longer in darkness. Sin's power has been broken over you. You no longer have to be controlled and dominated by your, your fleshly lust and passions. So because of this great thing that even Peter says that, the, that these angels even long to look at, this is an amazing thing that this holy God would redeem sinful man for himself. Because of this, because of what God has done, verse 13 says, therefore, looking back, therefore, because we have a foundational teaching about salvation, about what God has done for us, we need to turn that knowledge into reality and live it out before a lost world. Did you get that? Because of this great salvation that God has caused us to be born again, therefore, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Mean, meaning, don't, don't let any loose strings hang off. Don't be lazy in your thinking now because of this salvation. Because you've been called by God, you can't be lazy in your thinking. You have to prepare your mind. Like Mark mentioned a little bit earlier in, in Sunday school. Like putting on the armor of God. It has to be put on. I've been called out of darkness and into light. I no longer live this way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, obedient, as obedient children, look at verse 18 real quick. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, meaning he just didn't give money for your redemption. It's, it, it's more expensive than that. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You've been born again by the blood of the lamb, by a sinless, loving Savior, suffering in his human nature, being crucified, dead, buried, and raised again. That's how you've been redeemed. That's how you've been called a chosen generation. It was costly. He had to spill his blood. You're no longer your own. He owns you. Therefore, because of what Christ has done, Verse 14, going back, chapter 1 here. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to that. Gird your mind. Prepare your mind for action. You better be sober about this thinking. Because he goes on and says, As he who called you is holy, then you also be holy in all of your conduct. We've been born again so that we could live holy lives that is pleasing 
to our God who's holy. That's it. The sum of the whole law and of all that God requires of us is this, that his image should shine forth in us, out there. And when his image shines through us out there, they're going to look at us as strange because we're different. We don't talk like that. We don't look at that. We don't speak like that. We don't drink that. We don't smoke that. Whatever it might be, we're different. We've, we've been born again by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, be holy in all your conduct. Now, when he says be holy because I am holy, God's not saying I want you to be like me and be equal. Right? I mean, we're, we're, we're not going to be God. However, since we have been born of his spirit and we reflect his image, it should be our goal that the rest of our lives we should live and pursue his holy character. That should be our goal. We pursue many things in this world, don't we? Knowledge, go to great school, wealth, have money to retire, and stuff like that. We pursue a lot of stuff. But do you pursue holiness? Do you practice righteousness? Do you set out on this pursuit that I am going to reflect his image in a world out there that doesn't? So if you're going to be holy because he's holy and you're going to say no to sin and live for the will of God, mark this down, I am going to suffer for that. You're going to suffer for that. Which brings us to our text, 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you uh, look in your bulletin, I kind of gave a little outline here, listed four things. Um, Number one, we choose suffering because of Christ's example. Number two, we choose suffering because of the will of God. Number three, we choose suffering because it's been long enough. And number four, we choose suffering because of eternal life. So, Peter begins in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, in verse 1, and he says, Since therefore... Now, he's starting a sentence with this. And remember, back in the days, there were no such thing as breaking up chapters and verses. Okay? They do that for us today, so it's more easier to read and easier to find it. But back in the days, they didn't have this. It was just a letter. So since therefore Christ suffered in his flesh. I believe that's taken us back to two scriptures. Number one is 1 Peter 2.24, which Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay? 1 Peter 2.24 and also 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, once, once for sins, that the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So because Christ suffered in his flesh, it looks back to Christ's suffering in his human nature. His human nature was killed. It was put to death. It was crucified. So we look back to Christ's suffering on the cross for sin, but also, according to 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him, we also look to his triumph over sin. He has defeated sin. Sin has lost its power. He's defeated it completely. And Jesus, as you know, is not exempted from suffering at all in this life, right? He had no guilt of his own. He he could have declined suffering all, all along. He could have just declined it. But he willingly chose to suffer 
Nobody takes my life from me, but I what? I willingly lay it down. I'm choosing this. What was the reason Christ suffered? It was for sin. Christ suffered for the sins of men. And his sufferings were proper punishment, by the way. This is what sin gets. The wages of sin is death. You can't take sin lightly. Like I mentioned a little bit earlier in Psalm 51, you you, you just can't, sin's not lightly. It costs Christ his life. He willingly chose to suffer for the sins of mankind. And this suffering was to make atonement for sin, and it extends to all sin, by the way. All sin. It was the just for the unjust. He substituted himself in our room instead, and he bore our iniquities. He that knew no sin suffered instead of those who knew no righteousness. That's unbelievable. And Christ says, it is worth it. It's worth it that I should suffer. So in in sight of Jesus' suffering, should not this motivate us to deal decisively with sin once and for all? Since, Since Christ suffered in his flesh, and we've seen that, we sung the song, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, and we saw that if you who take sin so lightly, just look on the cross. Just look what it did. Just look at the payment it was. Since Christ suffered... It should motivate us to live holy for him. Since he suffered and died physically, we are now dead to the power of sin over our lives. It can no longer control us. We still sin, but however, when we sin, we are making a conscious choice to do that. Listen to Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And by the way, if you've never read that book, I would encourage everyone to grab that book. It is an easy reading, but it is an awesome book. The Pursuit of Holiness, Jerry Bridges. He says in The Pursuit of Holiness, when we sin as Christians, we do not sin as slaves, but as individuals with the freedom of choice. We sin because we choose to sin. And that's what Peter here is trying to, to, to get over to them. Since Christ suffered in his flesh, I want you to have this mind to also suffer for that. And not choose sin, but rather suffer for it. Listen to John Calvin. If we are united to Christ, we are really and effectually supplied with invincible weapons to subdue the flesh. We are to make every effort to arm ourselves with Christ's manner of thinking so that we would be willing to suffer than to do evil. My goal today is that when you go out of here today, you would think about sin differently. You would look at it differently. And because of that, your life would change and become more holy. Because Peter goes on and says, Since therefore Christ suffered in his flesh, I want you to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Or in other words, have the mind of Christ. How do we get that? How do we, how do we get the mind of Christ? By immersing oneself in the word of God. It always goes back to that, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's here that we have the mind of Christ. It's, it's looking and searching the scriptures with the help of the Holy Spirit and getting that mindset in us. Jesus prayed, Lord, your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
This word arm conveys going out to battle and putting on armor before you go out. Anybody would be foolish if you're going to go out to war. If you don't put on any equipment to protect yourself, you're a fool. And we can't miss Peter's points here. You can't miss this. We are in a relentless war with the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly. Every second of every day, we are in this war, this tug of war, being pulled one way and the other. Like it or not. And we better arm ourselves. So it basically means here, when he says arm yourselves, it basically means to make ready or to prepare, to equip oneself with weapons. And what's the weapon here Peter's referring to? None other than the mind of Christ. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter here is not speaking of literal weapons, right? He's using a figurative T to, figurative T to convey the idea of arming oneself with the mind. Watch this now. Arming oneself with the mind or the thought in preparation of suffering. So when I am going to live holy life or I'm going to go into this situation, I better arm myself that I'm going I'm to better prepare myself that I'm probably going to suffer here. They're probably not going to like it. I might lose my job or, or whatever the case is. So you have to prepare yourself for that. You don't go in there without any weapons. You go in it with being prepared. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus says this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If I suffered in my flesh for sin, you better arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So Peter here tells us that righteous and holy living begins with righteous thinking. Righteous living begins with righteous thinking. Holiness must begin in our thinking and in our will. That's where it starts. If we yield to sin, the flesh doesn't suffer. But if we refuse the sin, our flesh will suffer. However, as suffering for that, we will be doing the will of God and bring him much glory. Because you always got to go back to this. Look at Christ. Did he suffered for you. Can we not Suffer for him when it comes to living holy, when the temptation comes a knocking and it's there and we have a decision to make. Peter's saying, instead of going for that, I want you to choose Christ and you're going to suffer for it. Your flesh is going to suffer for it. It's not going to feel good because sin feels good to our flesh, doesn't it? It does. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, thank God, bringing salvation for all people. Watch this now. Training us. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, which is sin, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is what we've been talking about. He's purchased us for himself. And, he's, and because of that, the grace has appeared to us that that grace is training us. It's, it's training us to, to renounce that so that we might purify ourselves for him and be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I want to be like Christ. And if that means suffering, then suffer it may be. 
We have the hope of eternal life. (laughs) The goal is glory. So we suffer for a while down here. Christ did it, and now he reigns over all. And one day we will be in glory with him. His grace will equip you to suffer for righteousness and not give in to sin. When Christ, Christ did not just die for our sin, church, he died for our sinfulness. He did not just die to bear our guilt of our sin, he died to kill our original sin. Not just to bear it, he died to absolutely put that thing to death. Our dead, corrupt, fallen nature was crucified with Christ. Therefore, he told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. He's a new creation. He's strange. He's different. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Thank God. Thank God we don't act the way we used to act or talk the way we used to talk. Sin is so deeply embedded in us that it cannot be cured by anything but death. The old life has to die. God doesn't improve it. He doesn't make it better. He doesn't clean it or wash it. He kills it. And because of our identification in Christ, therefore we're to live the rest of our lives by mortifying our sin, our fleshly lusts and our passions. We're to put those to death. That's how we're supposed to live since we've been called out of darkness and into his life, into his light. We are to arm ourselves because, going back to verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is a difficult passage to interpret. I, 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 don't, I don't really say I, I, I know what this is actually meaning. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Of course, we, we know this, that Peter is not teaching perfection. Okay, we, we know that. Because until we're glorified, we're, gonna, we're going to sin. We're not going to be perfect. I believe what he's saying here is that since Christ suffered in his flesh and killed sin's power, we by faith and our identification in Christ arming our minds with this, we are also dead to sin. Because of our identification with Christ, sin no longer reigns or controls us. And this is the same truth that Paul taught over in Romans 6. Since Christ suffered in the flesh and destroyed sin, we identify ourselves with Christ and we choose to suffer and be like him. And when we do that, we cease from sin. We don't do the sin. That's what I, I, I believe it's talking about. I could be wrong. Peter is saying, choose suffering. Because if you don't choose suffering, you're going to choose what? Sin. And Christ is worth suffering for. You are to arm your way, you are to arm your mind with this way of thinking that you're going to choose God and you're going to suffer for being holy and you're going to say no to sin and you're going to cease from doing that because of what Christ has done for me. I'm going to be like him and follow in his footsteps and he has died to sin's control of my life. I'm going to start believing that. I'm going to start living that and I'm going to, and I'm going to choose to suffer and no more live that way. So, we can no longer say, God, I can't help it. I'm just human. I'm just dominated by this sin. I'm enslaved to this sin. If we are still in a condition of slavery to sin, 
we probably should recheck our salvation. If we are still living a lifestyle that is enslaved to sin, and you just can't say no, you're always giving over to that, you probably need to check your salvation if you're truly saved. Listen to what the Apostle John, who just lays this out clear as anything. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 through 10. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is 1 John 3. I don't think it's up there yet. Verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, and you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Don't let anyone deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he who is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Pretty straightforward, huh? 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8 says this, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. He's called us not for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, if you disregard this, you're not disregarding me, you're disregarding God who has given us his Holy Spirit. And the reason he's called the Holy Spirit is because he's holy and his goal is to make us holy. Number two, we choose suffering because it's the will of God. Verse two says, So whoever has ceased in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do the will of God over your will. Abandon your former sins and live for the will of God. Not for your own purposes. We don't pray, nevertheless, not your will, but my will be done, but the opposite. And as I said, church, all sin is disobedience. You know that? It's just disobedience. All sin is a personal act of rebellion against God. There's no excuse. He has broken the power of sin over our lives. When we choose, we willfully do that. The hope of every Christian, I hope, is to cease from sin one day, right? And of course, that's glory, that's heaven. But since that's the goal, and since we're, we're heading for that holiness in heaven, our goal then is should to be pursuing that here. And ultimately, it arrives in, in glory. But if it's our goal to cease from sin and, and have that eternal hope, which we've been called to, our goal the rest of our life here is not for our flesh, but to pursue that holiness that one day we will be fully in for eternity. That should be our goal. As we saw in 1 Peter 3.18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring you to God. It's like he reached his hand over this great gulf and pulled you out of darkness and over into his light. And our goal is we don't want to go back there. We, we don't want to live like that anymore. It's wonderful here. That's his whole goal. He died so that he'd bring us to God and not for impurity, but for holiness. To live holy lives that's well-pleasing to our God. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 14 to 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all those, all that those who live 
might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, died and was raised. You've not been called out of darkness to live for yourselves, to live for your fleshly passions and lusts. You've not been called out for that. That has to suffer with Christ. We've been called to live holy lives. I mentioned Romans 6 earlier. Let me, let me read that to you real quick. Romans 6, verses 8 through 12. We'll move on. Paul says this, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives for God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's that law of identification right there. There's our position. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Don't let it reign there. You have to have the mindset of Christ. I've ceased from sin. I've killed and destroyed sin. Therefore, I no longer live that way. And you cannot do that on your own. You must, by the power of his spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. You're unable to do it on your own. Number three, we choose suffering because it's been long enough. Verse three, chapter four. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. What Peter here is basically saying is this. Haven't you had enough of that life? All of us have had enough years living in sin We all have our stories that we could tell people about our B.C. days. But what did that get you in that that lifestyle? What did it it do for you? Got you addicted? Divorced? Abortion? Disease? Jail? None of that stuff we should ever be proud of. But you could just see that we've, we've lived enough of that life in the past. And it's done us no good. It's only brought harm. It's nothing we, we want to go back to. It's enough. So Peter says, don't do it anymore. Suffer if you must, but don't, don't, don't sin anymore. Don't go back to those types of stuff, the drunkenness and the orgies and the drinking parties, which is just foul. That should not even be associated with the child of God. We're to be holy. We're to be separated, consecrated to our God who is perfect and holy and righteous. And our goal as children is to be like our father. I think every kid's desire is want to be like his dad. The word past here, for the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The word past here is in the perfect tense, which means this, that their old life is a closed chapter and should stay closed. It's not open anymore. John Phillips wrote, and I quote, We might have gotten away with things when we were pagans, but that will not do for the new life we have in Christ. Peter reminds us that the past is the past, and the word past in the Greek means a closed chapter, and that part of the story is over and done with. There must be no going back to it. It's like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, The old man has been what? crucified with Christ. He is dead. He no longer lives. The life I now live, it's Christ living in me and through me. And that should be a holy life. You ever 
you ever gone to a church or something like that, and you go out to lunch with a couple, you know, just getting to know, and they, you know, ask you questions about, you know, what did you used to be like before Christ? And you're like, oh, man, I didn't want, didn't want them to ask me that question, you know. A lot of us are still um, feeling guilt, shame, um, remorse for our past life, our past sins that we've done in our ignorance. But now that we've been called out of that and into his life, there is no excuse. So if you're haunted here this morning, I just want to encourage you, put it under the blood. Christ has suffered in the flesh for that. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and here's the suffering that they were enduring, they malign you. They slander you. They make fun of you. They make you an outcast. You lose your job. But if that's the case and it's the will of God, then we choose to suffer for that. If you want to grow in holiness, church, you have got not only to separate yourself from these sins that were listed here in verse 3, but you also have got to separate yourself from sinners who live this way. Who are you hanging out with? 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You still hang with those old friends doing what they love to do? Can't make that break? You need to make that break. That chapter is closed. And when you do that, they are going to be surprised when you don't join them. Come on, we're going out tonight. No, I don't do that anymore. What? I don't do that anymore. What are you talking about? I'm a Christian. What is that? I'm no longer hanging with you. I'm not going to do that anymore. It's wrong. And when they hear that, you know, who do you think you are? You're going to suffer. They're going to be surprised. And they're going to malign you. They're going to insult you. And because of all this persecution, I'm sure that these believers here were wondering, you know, why am I going through this? This is difficult. This suffering I've never experienced. I thought I was going to give my life to Christ and everything was going to be great. And here I am suffering. Man, I've lost friend after friend after friend. I've got no friends left. They all think I'm weird. So they're probably being tempted just to go back into the the, the routine and hang out with the old gang and do what the old gang does so that they don't have to suffer anymore. Look down here, it's like the old Schlitz beer commercial. Grab all the gusto you can since you only go around once. Just, you know, live and party and enjoy life and, and all the fun stuff that our flesh really likes. But Peter comes back with that in verse 5 and says, Oh, by the way, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The living and the dead shows that this judgment is inclusive. No one is going to escape it. Christ could return at any moment or death could happen at any second. And then what? As they're living this life of ungodliness... He's ready to judge the living and the dead. Which leads us to our last type that we're to suffer as we choose suffering because of the hope of eternal life. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached. Why? Why? Because he's ready to judge the living and the dead. 
He's the judge of all. He sees all things. His judgment is perfect. And they're going to give an account. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. You all know that, right? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In verse 6, this is also another difficult passage. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So this is why the gospel is preached goes back to verse 5, to save people from judgment. And those people, those other people, probably refer to people who heard the gospel before they died. They died probably before this letter was written, and maybe some of those readers knew, maybe some of these believers that Peter was writing to, knew those people who were killed. Maybe they were killed for their faith. I, I, I don't know here. But it says here that even to those who are dead, that though being judged in the flesh, this means physically being put to death. This means they were judged according to the flesh. Like I said, they might have been killed for their, for their faith. I don't know that. So, so you can just see the persecution, persecution that these, these readers, they're, they're being insulted by their friends and they're being laughed at. And they're saying, you know, you're missing all the funds and you're missing all the parties and you're just going to die just like these guys before died. You're just going to go right into the ground so you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. Come on. But the gospel was not preached to these people who were judged in the flesh in vain. Though they died according to the flesh, meaning they physically died those who believe the gospel are alive and well. Even those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. They are with the Lord right now and enjoying, may I say, way better parties than what these people are going to experience. Romans 8.18 Mark this one down. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you pass on the parties and the drinkingness and the drunkenness and the orgies and all the stuff that the flesh really likes. Put to death, crucify, mortify those fleshly desires, suffer with Christ, and our hope is eternal glory. And we will pass from this judgment. So as I close, maybe there might be a few of you in here who still live according to verse 3. Still love to party. Still love drunkenness. Still love those things the flesh craves after. Let me ask you this one question. Are you really happy? Are you, are you really happy in that lifestyle? of going out, getting drunk, coming home and not knowing how you got home, waking up with headaches, sleeping around, living the fun life. Is it really fun? Are you really happy? Because if not, my word to you is just like what Peter says here in verse 3. It's enough. It's, it's enough. You've lived long enough in this life. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, leave it and put to death those passions and live for the glory of God. And you will live in the Spirit the way God does. You know, there's two ways of dying. And people die, they ask, you know, how do he die? And, you know, he might say, oh, car accident or cancer or heart attack. There's only two ways of dying in the Bible. You either die in faith or you die in your sins. You either die in faith in Christ or you die in your sins. But it will be one of those two. I pray, if you hear the sound of my voice and you know you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You're living this life that does not bring him honor. You're destroying 
yourself. You think it's a great time, but deep down, you're, you're just a wreck. Come to Christ. Let it go. Just let it go. Humble yourselves. Ask God to give you the grace to repent and receive him, and he will open armly receive you into his kingdom to where you will experience unbelievable parties in heaven.